0: Good afternoon and welcome. It's Midday. I'm Tom Hall. Today it's the Midday News Wrap. Brian Sears of Maryland Matters broke a big story this week. A blown deadline by the State Department of Assessments and Taxation may lead to a shortfall of a quarter of a billion dollars over the next three years for county governments across the state. We'll talk about that in a second. But perhaps the biggest local and statewide news in the last couple of weeks concerns the race for the open U.S. Senate seat. Maryland's senior Senator Ben Cardin will retire at the end of his term next January. Former Maryland Governor Larry Hogan surprised just about everybody when he announced earlier this month that he is running to succeed Cardin in Washington. So what does Hogan's decision mean for the Democrats who are vying for their party's nomination? Congressman David Trone and Prince George's County Executive Angela Also Brooks are both making the case that they are best positioned to beat the popular two-term governor, come November. Josh Kurtz is the founding and uh, the founder and editor of Maryland Matters, and he joins us on Zoom. Josh, how you doing?
1: Hey, Tom. Good to be with you.
0: So this Senate race really did get shook up when Larry Hogan uh, decided to run uh, for the seat. We'd heard from him uh, on numerous occasions saying he wasn't interested in being in the Senate. Uh, what do you think caused his change of heart?
1: Um, I think a couple of things, Tom, I think, you know, he said he didn't feel like he was done with public service. And, you know, he was looking for ways to uh, get back into the arena. And, uh, you know, you can take him at his word. I think that's certainly part of it. I think part of it is, you know, he just likes being in the limelight, likes the game, likes to uh, sort of screw up people's uh, assumptions. And he achieved all of that by uh, by jumping in.
0: Let's listen to uh, a little bit of a clip. Uh, he was on CNN talking about uh, his reasons for jumping in. Future Democratic. Maryland is the bluest state in the country. It's more than two to one Democrat or Republican. And uh, Joe Biden won the, the last election in Maryland by a million votes, by 33 percentage points. But I'm not running as Donald Trump. I think you probably know. I, I was the, probably the most outspoken critic in our party, mm-hmm. uh, standing up to him. And I, I'm, I'm really, I'm not running for the Republican Party or for any, any candidate for president. I'm, I decided to run to kind of stand up and fight for the people of Maryland and, and fight against the broken politics in Washington. Uh, and I, I, I'm going to stand up to, to people of both parties and, and just go out there and talk to the voters about uh, why they elected me twice as governor and why I think I can do the same thing representing them in Washington. So, Josh, uh, electability as a governor, he certainly has proved that. He was elected twice. He ended up his term after eight years with a 68 percent approval rating among Democrats uh, and much higher among Republicans. Um, What are the parallels between running statewide for governor and running statewide for Senate? Uh, And does he have, uh, you know, a sort of built in leg up here in this race against whoever the Democrats nominate?
1: Well, I don't think there are very, very many parallels, actually, Tom. Um, and yet he's going to be formidable. Um, short term, he's by far the best known of the uh, potential candidates. Um, his poll numbers already have shown that he's doing pretty well. But he has never run uh, during a, in a presidential year. He's running at a time when Donald Trump is almost certainly going to be the Republican nominee and is... Governor Hogan, Hogan himself pointed out in that clip, Trump is not going to do well in Maryland uh, this fall. And then on top of that, you have other factors going on. It's one thing to kind of have an iconoclastic, um, you know, not party regular uh, when you're voting, when you're when you're looking at a candidate from the opposite party. But this is really a federal election. There's going to be a serious impact on who controls the Senate. You know this is a democratic state and they don't want mr mcconnell into in charge of the senate by voting for larry hogan they're going to make it a lot easier they're going to make it easier for a president trump to get his agenda through um so there are all kinds of things that make this election a lot different uh for governor hogan than they did when he ran in 2014 and 2018.
0: the news site punch bowl had uh reporting about Uh, A poll taken by Ragnar Research Partners, this is a polling firm that uh, Larry Hogan has used many times in the past, showing that he leads uh, both of the major candidates on the Democratic side, Representative David Trone and Prince George's County Executive Angela also Brooks, by substantial margins. And then, of course, David Trone released an internal poll from his campaign showing that he beats Hogan in a head-to-head matchup, um, what are we to make of these, you know, competing internal polls uh, claiming that they've got the upper hand?
1: Well, every internal poll has to be digested with a, a, a certain amount of skepticism, but but both these guys are using reputable pollsters, and so there's definitely something to take away from them. To me, it's not surprising that Governor Hogan is doing so well so early, just because. There is this residual goodwill surrounding him, and uh, you know people, voters generally like him. But for some of the reasons that I mentioned before, and we haven't even talked about abortion, which is going to be on the ballot this fall, um, it becomes trickier for him. The Democratic polls—I I mean, I think—I think it's probably right that if the if the primary were held today, Congressman Trone would probably defeat um, County Executive Also Brooks. He has spent. Oodles of money on advertising, on mailers, and stuff like that. He has, through the end of twenty twenty three, spent twenty three million dollars of his own money on this campaign. Whereas um, County Executive Also Brooks just started going up on TV last week, and it was a fairly modest buy. So, you know, the 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 electorate is just hearing a lot more from and a, and a lot more about David Trone right now than they are about Angela Also Brooks. But we still have two and a half, three months until uh, the primary. So there's still a lot that's in flux.
0: Absolutely, a lot of uh, stuff in flux. I had David Trone on the show here on Midday as part of our Conversations with the Candidates series a couple of weeks ago. Uh, and in the next week or two, uh, we're having county executive also Brooks. Let's listen to her ad. As you mentioned, David Trone was on television really early uh, and really uh, ubiquitously. I mean, he really bought uh, a lot of ads. Uh, so Angela also Brooks just starting to do some television advertising. This is her first uh, gamble. The
2: average U.S. senator is 64 years old, worth 16 million dollars, and the last time they went to the grocery store, I'll let you decide. I'm Angela also Brooks, and. That's not me. As the mom of a teenage daughter and daughter of aging parents, I know the pressures we all face. That's why, as county executive, I've worked to create jobs, invest in schools, and expand health care. You deserve a senator who understands you and who will fight for you. That's why I approve this message.
0: So, Josh Kurtz, um, if Angela Also Brooks, in fact, is the nominee and wins the general election, it would be an historic uh, choice by Maryland voters, given the fact that she is an African-American woman. Uh, she'd be the only African-American woman in the congressional delegation and one of just a few uh, African-American senators uh, in the history of the republic. How much do you think that historical nature of her candidacy is going to uh, to impact this race?
1: I think it has the potential to impact it quite a bit. Um, and in fact, um You know, the the clip you played of her ad, if you actually see the ad on TV, it's a very arresting image because it has lots of pictures of old white guys basically in the in the in the ad. And she's obviously not that. Um, So, I mean, I think that's part of her appeal. And that's, um, you know, that will provide a great contrast to her and Congressman Trone in the primary, a great contrast if she gets to the general election with Governor Hogan. I thought that ad was a not-so-subtle swipe at both those guys. So, I mean, it really has the potential to be uh, uh, a big motivating factor for her supporters, but it's a question of does she have the resources to uh, to get the message out as widely as she needs to, particularly with Congressman Trone spending so much money?
0: Yeah, I mean, uh, it's possible that he'll, he will spend upwards of $50 million running for this seat. he spent ten or twelve million dollars running in some of his congressional races for the House. Um, so and he's you know he's a very wealthy man and uh, and he's certainly not bashful about investing his own money in this quest. Um, his ad uh, or one of his most recent ads uh, has him paired with Hakeem Jeffries, the minority leader in the House of Representatives, an African American uh, who is, uh, uh, you know, uh, well thought of in democratic circles uh, nationwide. I'm not sure how many people here in Maryland pay close attention to him, but here's uh, what Mr. Trone's ad has to say about his endorsement from Hakeem Jeffries. Future Democratic Speaker of the House, King Jeffries, has endorsed David Trone for the way he served the people of Maryland. So here's Marylanders reading the endorsement.
1: David Trone has been a consistent and valued partner to fix our broken criminal justice system, eliminate barriers for returning citizens, and root
0: out systemic racism. And he's worked hard to create new manufacturing and tech jobs in the parts of Maryland too often left behind.
2: Sign minority leader, Hakeem
1: Jeffries.
0: I'm David Trone, and I approve this message. So Josh Kurtz, uh, obviously Angela also Brooks, as you've mentioned, uh, is going to you know, uh, be fighting this barrage of uh, financial uh, advantage that David Trone will have throughout this race. Um, how does David Trone deflect the charge that he's buying the seat? Uh, because he is wealthy, he's, he's sim- is simply purchasing uh, a seat in the Senate. What do you think his response to that charge is going to be?
1: Well, I think his pivot is that um, he's not beholden to anybody. Um, you know, the, the, there's a there's a huge special interest presence on Capitol Hill. You know, special interests play a lot in uh, political races. They throw a lot of money around, and he doesn't have to be beholden to anyone because he's just spending all of his own money. That's a that and that's really the crux of his argument. He talks a lot about special interest control in Washington and how he's not part of the game. And I think that will appeal to some people for sure. Um, and, you know, it's you, you you can't say you're not trying to buy the seat when you're putting so much of your own money in. But I think that argument is compelling for some voters, for sure.
0: Um, uh, there are 10 Democrats running uh, for Senate. Uh, Trone and also Brooks, clearly the two uh, leading candidates uh with these lesser candidates the other 8 uh do you think that they're uh, going to be positioned to siphon away uh votes and and uh, from from either of the two leaders uh in in a way that can impact the the result in the primary
1: um i have to say just thinking about that field there are a couple of appealing folks but i i, I just don't think anyone is poised to make an impact, even as a, even in kind of a, a spoiler role. I mean, I think we're talking about, you know, handfuls of votes that some of these folks are going to get. I think, you know, if we're if we talk about some of the House races that are going on, some of the lesser candidates could be in a position to impact the result. But I don't think that's the case in this.
0: Yeah, in this right yeah I'm, I'm with you on that one. There are seven Republicans uh, on the ballot uh, in the Senate primary. Larry Hogan, clearly the leader, I think uh, it's it. it uh, it's a pretty sure bet that he'll win that race and he's not going to have to spend a whole lot of money in the primary becoming the nominee, um, but whereas Trone and also Brooks are going to have to spend a lot of money uh, becoming their nominee, um, the, the nominee of the Democrats. Uh, what do you think that's going to mean the, to the general election if it's Hogan against one of those two?
1: Well there is no doubt that Larry Hogan is going to have a lot of money for the general election um and you know associated Republican groups and super PACs working on his behalf I think the same is probably going to be true for the Democrats I mean first of all Congressman Trone has you know seemingly an unlimited amount of money of his own to spend so that will carry over into the general election and I think because of the historic nature of Angela also Brooks's campaign if she's the Democratic nominee she'll probably wind up with a a a healthy chunk of change uh on her behalf both directly for her campaign and with associated groups the one thing I will say about this is one thing Hogan's candidacy does is it makes both parties spend money on Maryland which they weren't planning to do and particularly for Democrats who have a few other vulnerable seats to defend senate seats to defend around the country this becomes an issue um so that's something to, to watch out for
0: yeah the chance of uh, of the senate changing hands and Mitch McConnell regaining uh, his leadership role uh you know is is very real to be sure um there are three count them three house seats that are now open because of a couple of retirements. And one of them is the seat that David Trone holds. He's running for Senate. So John Sarbanes is retiring. Dutch Rupersberger is retiring. John Sarbanes representing the third district. There are 22 Democrats running in the primary to succeed John Sarbanes. That's a lot of folks. Uh, it includes a former Capitol police officer who was involved in the January 6th insurrection. Uh, it includes five or six members of the Maryland General Assembly, a couple of senators and a few delegates. Um, how, do you, how do you see that race, uh, you know, winnowing the field there? I mean, that's just a lot of people running.
1: Yeah, that's a very tough race to handicap. I, I mean, my sense is, I, I mean, I guess I would say there are three front runners in that race. Um, One is Harry Dunn, the police officer you mentioned. Um, He just announced, well, he just became a candidate in January and he just announced this week that he raised at least $2.75 million in the first three weeks of his candidacy. That's a ton of money. Um, The the other two uh, front runners, I would say, are the two state senators in the race. Um, Sarah Elfrith, who, uh, represents the Annapolis area in the Senate, and um, Clarence Lamb, who represents a district that's mostly in Howard County and takes in some of Anne Arundel as well. They were the two big fundraisers in the first part of the campaign. They each took in about $400,000 in the first few weeks that they were candidates, and that's a very respectable amount, but certainly blown out of the water by Harry Dunn. Um, They have sort of political bases, and they're well-known among kind of activist Democrats done as more of a celebrity candidate. so we'll kind of see how that translates, uh, you know, on the campaign trail.
0: Yeah, and again, you know, national money uh, being invested in that race for the third district in the sixth district, which is David Trone's district, the seat that he's giving up. April Delaney is one of the 16 Democrats uh, on the ballot in that race. Uh, April Delaney, the wife of a former Maryland congressman, John Delaney. Uh, what are her chances look like? What's the rest of that field uh, look like in your in your take?
1: Yeah, I mean, that's an interesting field, too. And there are a couple of state legislators and uh, a few other local elected officials in that race. Um, You know, you would have to say that April Delaney, who I might add, is a is a lawyer and has been a high ranking official in the U.S. Commerce Department. um, She is sort of she she has by far the most money and has been running kind of the most conventional campaign with consultants and, you know, uh, things of that sort. So kind of by those those sort of accepted metrics, she is probably the front runner. Um, You know, uh, there's a young state delegate, Joe Vogel, who is running a surprisingly aggressive campaign. Um, I I think a couple of other Democrats are in the mix, but I think I would have to say it's uh, it's Delaney's to lose right now. And Uh, the the likely
0: Republican nominee in that race, uh, somebody who, who came close the last time, Neil Parrott, a former state senator.
1: Yeah, and and we should we should we should say Tom that that's going to be by far the most competitive general election in the state uh, among the eight house seats. That's an actual competitive seat. Um, And you're right, Neil Parrott is running, but then so is Dan Cox, who was the the gubernatorial nominee in 2022 for the Republicans. Um, He's going to have a good chunk of the vote in the Republican primary, the sort of Trumpy vote, if you will, and. There are one or two other candidates worth watching there too, so um, not a not a slam dunk for anyone on on, on either side, I don't think.
0: Yeah, and uh, we have uh, Senator Parrott uh, booked for our conversations with the candidates series, as well as Sarah Elfrith, the senator from Annapolis, uh, and so we'll be speaking with them and then others involved in these congressional races. Let's talk quickly as we finish up here, Josh, about Johnny Olszewski Jr., uh, who has announced that he is running uh, to succeed Dutch Ruppersberger in the second district. There are about six Democrats in total on the ballot in that primary. How do you see his chances?
1: Um, I think they're pretty good. Uh, You know, he's, he's far and away, you know, he's the Baltimore County executive. He's far and away the best known candidate. He's got you know, money, he's got establishment support. I think he'll be fine in the primary. And while he may well square off against Kim Klasik, the Republican conservative radio host and kind of provocateur, she'll attract a lot of attention. But I think he'll be fine in the general election against her too.
0: And I want to ask you real quickly before we uh, let you go about this wonderful story that Brian Sears from Maryland Matters uh, filed a couple of days ago about uh, the State Department of Assessments and Taxation uh, screwing up and not getting stuff in the mail on time, which somehow uh, is possibly going to end up in uh, a quarter of a billion dollars uh, less revenue for counties around the state. What happened?
1: Well, it it appears as it appears as if there was some kind of printing error with the the agency's contractor and they just didn't get the mail out on time. Um and uh you know, as a result, that could impact the way um uh counties collect property taxes from from their residents. Uh so now the legislature is scrambling to see what they can do to you know either adjust the deadlines so that the new assessments go into effect or maybe make the can the can the counties whole somehow i mean it's it's a mess and and uh legislators in annapolis are just beginning to kind of get their arms around the problem
0: yeah of course this is a perfect example of uh you know folks in leadership making promises and, and visions of you know articulating their vision for what uh government should do but Uh, So many times it just comes down to nuts and bolts and making things work. Uh, And in this case, you know, stuff did not work in a big, big way. Josh Kurtz is the founder and editor of Maryland Matters, an absolutely indispensable source of information about politics having to do with Maryland in particular, the General Assembly uh, and the races going on for Uh, all of the federal offices here in this big election year. So, Josh, thanks, as always, for uh, the work you all do and uh, the terrific reporting on your team. Appreciate it. Thanks
1: for having me on, Tom. Thank you.
0: The Midday News Wrap continues on the other side of a quick break. WIPR's Emily Hofstetter joins me to talk about the lawsuit that the city of Baltimore settled with a ghost gun manufacturer. We'll talk about that in just about 90 seconds. I'm Tom Hall. Stay with us.
1: This is Baltimore's NPR News Station, 881 WYPR.
0: Welcome back. It's midday. I'm Tom Hall. By the way, coming up Monday on midday, your public radio has a new name and a new Sonic ID. President and general manager Craig Swagler and composer Wendell Patrick will join me to share the big news about Baltimore public media. Plus, Heidi Daniel will bid farewell to Baltimore as the CEO of the Enoch Pratt Library. I'll speak with Heidi and with Darcelle Graham. We'll step into the role of interim CEO while the search for a permanent CEO takes place. So that's all coming up Monday here on Midday. And if you just joined us today, it's the Midday News Wrap. Joining me now is WIPR's Emily Hofstetter with news about a lawsuit that the city of Baltimore has just settled with a ghost gun manufacturer. She joins me here in Studio A. It's good to see you.
2: Hey, Tom. Happy Friday. Thank
0: you. Happy Friday to you. So this is a big deal. I mean, $1.2 million comes uh, to the city uh, part of the settlement. Here's a bit of the story that you filed for us a couple days ago.
2: Two years ago, Baltimore City sued Polymer 80, alleging that untraceable guns from the company's kits were creating a public health crisis. This week, officials announced that the company will pay Baltimore $1.2 million in damages. The sale and advertising of the kits will be prohibited in the state, and Maryland residents will be banned from purchasing them in neighboring states, said Mayor Brandon Scott on Wednesday.
1: Uh, there is also a provision uh, requiring them to provide quarterly reports uh, to the city of Baltimore documenting all sales of ghost guns in neighboring states to ensure uh, that they are complying with this, that provision.
2: The lawsuit builds on a 2022 state law that essentially bans ghost guns by changing the definition of a firearm to include an unfinished frame or receiver.
0: So Emily, just uh, for folks who maybe don't cover, you know, pay attention to this really carefully, a ghost gun differs from another kind of gun in one very specific and important way. What's that?
2: Yeah. Well, so first of all, it doesn't have a serial number on it. If you go to buy a regular firearm, it's got a serial number, it makes it a lot more traceable. These uh, guns in particular, they're made by kits. So on Polymer's website, you can buy um, a kit that allows you to build the frame of a gun, about 80% finished hence the 80 and polymer 80, and then you can buy your own slide and barrel, and voila, you've got a gun. So it's a build-your-own untraceable gun.
0: And uh, is the city of Baltimore alone around the country in uh, municipalities who have sued uh, manufacturers of these kinds of guns?
2: No, not at all. Um, More cities have been taking this route as well. L.A. and D.C. also have, um, they've already settled with polymer. Um, They have actually gotten a bit more in terms of money in damages. Um, however, Baltimore is, is considered um, by you know a handful of experts that I've spoken with um, to be more comprehensive in that settlement. Um, so you know the things that you heard in the story, the um, the total ban of sales advertising, um, the. Really big things, though, are in the neighboring states, you're not supposed to be able to get these kits. So if I go to York with my Maryland uh, ID, they're not supposed to be able to sell it to me. And then critically, as you heard Mayor Scott saying, Polymer is required to send reports quarterly documenting the sales that have been made in those neighboring states so we have a bit more data through that
0: so you can't buy one in Maryland Correct. you can't even buy one if you are a Maryland resident and you go to a neighboring state uh, and polymer 80 the company that makes these things is in charge of you know giving the data that says uh, who bought them and where they they bought
1: them what's
0: your take is that going to work I mean here's here's the, the the you know the fox garden the henhouse to a certain extent isn't it
2: Yeah, I mean, listen, so, you know, in 2022, Maryland did pass a law um, or actually a law went into effect in 2022 that essentially bans ghost guns already. And yet last year, BPD collected 462 ghost guns um, and they're already on track to collect a lot this year. So clearly like that in itself isn't keeping ghost guns off the street. Um, you know, but as far as these other things, like, those are novel. So maybe um, it's part of, you know, what Mayor Scott always described as a multi-pronged strategy. Um, you know, it's one of many different things that the city is trying to do in the hopes of even just keeping a few more guns off the street.
0: It's interesting to me that um, the, the city can uh, have a, a, a lawsuit that requires Uh, that that tells people in Pennsylvania and Virginia that they cannot sell something to somebody else. I mean, it's interesting that that a lawsuit can have that power and authority. Um, If you're a gun dealer in, you know, Pennsylvania somewhere, uh, it's interesting that there can be a lawsuit that says, nope, you can't sell this thing to Emily or Tom.
2: Yeah. um, I mean, I guess uh, it's the way that they look at it, it's more that the... um, you know, it's polymer, you know, less so than the dealer that isn't able to sell it. But yes, you can't sell these kits made by polymer. Of course, you know, the thing in the back of my mind that I have to wonder is, you know, that is restricted to the polymer 80 kits. So There are other companies that make these kits. Um, Polymer 80 is just the biggest. So, you know, you can see where there might be the potential for people to just start looking at different brands.
0: Yeah, and there are, you know, the the use of these things has just grown exponentially. Um, You mentioned there's 400 and something guns in 2023 were confiscated. Back in 2020, it was 29. I mean, it was it was literally less than, you know, three dozen. It went up to 126, you report, in 2021. So each year it's gone up. So now we're in the 400s. Um, is it now completely impossible to build a ghost gun in the state of Maryland? I mean, you're saying that there are other companies. Plus, there are other ways of building ghost guns, right? I mean, the Internet has all sorts of information on it, doesn't
2: it? I mean, yeah, so it's... Of course, not impossible. Um, People find ways, uh, you know, you can go to other companies, presumably. Um, You know, of course, in Maryland, it is illegal to have them. You're supposed to um, have a registered gun. Or if you've got one of these build your own guns, you're supposed to register and have a personal ID. Um, But certainly there are ways for people to work around it.
0: Um, it stops the sale in Maryland and in adjacent states to Marylanders. Um, but when it comes to gun trafficking, I mean, people are trafficking regular guns, too, you know, g- guns with serial numbers on them. Um, there, As you mentioned, there are statutes already on the books that the General Assembly has passed uh, to try to limit and, and, you know, retard that growth. Um, but in it, what's your take on, on what the actual impact will be in the the larger problem of gun trafficking,
2: Whew, you're playing stump the reporter here with me, Tom. <laughs> um, I mean, you know, these uh, things
0: are hard to know. Uh, yeah, it's all well, speculation, but but it's you know it's a big problem that a lot of people have identified for a long time. You gotta wonder, you know, will this be a big dent or you know a little hole?
2: Yeah, I mean, and listen, if you uh, listen to um, a meeting and press conference after press conference with Mayor Scott, such as I have, he will, you know, continue to say, um, you know, I wouldn't be Mayor Scott if I didn't talk about Congress's responsibility. Um, I think, you know, there is the potential that this could be an incredibly helpful step forward, this um, settlement with Polymer 80. But, you um, this is this is a national problem. So um, you know, it takes efforts from the state legislature and it takes um, efforts from Congress if we want to really tackle gun trafficking.
0: Emily Hofstetter covers all things Baltimore for WYPR. Our number here, 410-662-8780, if you'd like to weigh in on the ghost gun settlement that the city of Baltimore has reached with Polymer 80, the company that makes these ghost gun kits. Our email is midday at WIPR.org. It's the Midday News Wrap today. I'm Tom Hall. So, um, This is going to be, you know, this was part of uh, Mayor Scott's, this is part of Mayor Scott's overall violence reduction strategy, the group violence reduction, GVRS, group violence reduction strategy, um, and in the way of, uh, uh, you know, decreasing uh, the use of guns. Um, uh, This is going to be a major element of the campaign, as it continues to heat up, uh, Mayor Scott being challenged by Sheila Dixon uh, and others for uh, re-election uh, in May. The primaries on May 14th. Um, the, the group, vi- general in general, violence on the city streets of of Baltimore is going to, you know, still be a huge issue, isn't it?
2: Yeah, um, I think so. And uh, certainly, I have not yet spoken with Ms. Dixon, um, the former mayor, about um, this settlement in particular. Um, but crime is certainly a big part of her platform. It's a big part of both platforms. Um, mayor Scott is, you know, really drilling down on the impacts that the GVRS has had. Um, we saw a few weeks ago an independent study um, saying that that has made a dent in, in the gun violence. Um, and in uh, former Mayor Dixon's most recent recent um, public safety plan, uh, you know, she has said, uh, you know, that she is going to, you know, continue to look at that and, you know, wait that out a little bit. So um, that for now, is going to continue to be a strategy.
0: Yeah, and the violent crime, the uh, homicides and non-fatal shootings, uh, certainly have, uh, you know, declined uh, in 2023. Uh, it's 62 fewer people uh, lost yeah. their lives to homicide than in the year before. So um, there's progress there. But uh, when it comes to carjackings and, and car, uh, just general car thefts, I mean, some 10,000 plus cars in the city of Baltimore have been stolen uh, last year, it's, it's certainly going to be something that people are going to continue to talk about. I want to ask you just as we finish up in the last few minutes, you also uh, wrote a story about uh, indictments uh, mm-hmm. in a, uh, a law that uh, governs officer misconduct. This is, These are police misconduct cases. Um, so uh, some history being made here uh, just in the last few weeks.
2: Yeah, so um, again, I think back in 2022, uh, Maryland had a law go into effect that now um, if officers see um you know, excessive use of force, um, they have to try and intervene somehow. They have to do something. Um, so on Tuesday, Baltimore State's attorney, Ivan Bates, announced indictments for three Baltimore County officers. Um, however, the incident in particular took place in Baltimore City. Um, there was an incident where one officer... Um, Corporal Zachary Small, um, you know, pepper sprayed uh, a man who was completely bound in the back of an SUV. The man was, um, you know, complaining that he couldn't breathe. No medical efforts were made for him. Um, at one point, he was dragged out of the car, um, you know, beaten a bit. Um, and so after analyzing body cameras um, and, you know, interviewing people at the scene, they also decided that there were two other Baltimore County officers that could have intervened. It did not. Um, I'm not certain yet if it is the first time in the state that law has been used, but um, it is the first time that the state's attorney here in Baltimore City has um, pursued indictments under that law.
0: Interesting. Of course, uh, the former, uh, the person who held that job uh, before Ivan Bates, uh, when she indicted police officers back in 2015 in the Freddie Gray uh, aftermath, uh, that became a very... uh, Very crucial part of her biography and her um, efforts to win re-election, which she was not able to do this last time. Um, I want to ask you one more thing about the Inner Harbor, (laughs) um, because the city council uh, has uh, helped, uh, you know, the the developer... uh, of David Bramble uh of with with his plan to uh among other things construct apartment complex apartment buildings right on the water uh, where the light street pavilion is now um and the the city council uh, took a step uh making that particular plan uh, you know more more viable didn't
2: they Yeah so last week um they moved ahead um with those um, you know potential changes to the laws to um to two ordinances and a charter amendment that they passed through. So it's not a completely done deal. The full city council still has to um, vote on it. They'll have at least one more vote this week or next week, most likely. Um, but that plan so far is moving
0: forward. Yeah, I and mean, at least one uh, candidate for mayor, is kind of a perennial candidate, the Roo <laughs> yes. has made this uh, a, a big item uh, in his platform. He held a press conference a day or two ago. At the Inner Harbor saying, Mm -hmm. you know, it's terrible to have apartments built uh, on the Light Street Pavilion. So, all right, all sorts of stuff going on in City Hall and elsewhere. And we appreciate that you are uh, down there figuring it all out and letting (laughs) us know about it. (laughs) All right, have a great weekend. Thanks, Thanks. That's Emily Hofstetter. She covers Baltimore City Hall for the WIPR News team. And coming up after a quick break, a theater review of a new production of Peter Pan at the Hippodrome. Jay Wynn Russick will join me for that. But before we go to a break, each week here on our show, it's our practice to read the names of people who've lost their lives to violence in Baltimore City and to list their names on the Midday webpage. We do so to stand in witness to their untimely deaths and to remember their families and friends in their hour of grief. So far this year, Twenty-nine people have been identified as victims of homicide in our city. Police have identified three people who were killed last week. They are Dwayne Flintall, age 38, Darian Williams, age 45, and Ricky Cole. He was 69 years old. It's Midday. I'm Tom Hall. We'll be right back.
2: This is Baltimore's NPR News Station, 88. one WYPR.